Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Danielle Williams from the Australian Writers' Centre. Today I'm speaking to one of our presenters, Claire Scobie, who's just released her first novel, The Pagoda Tree. She's also a journalist and author of the travel memoir, Last Seen in Lhasa. Hi Claire, thank you for joining us. Hi Danielle, lovely to be here. First of all, tell us about the novel, The Pagoda Tree. Uh, The Pagoda Tree is a novel set in 18th century India. It's largely told through the eyes of a young temple dancer called Maya. And it's set at a time when India was on the cusp of change. And it was a time when the British were arriving, the European powers were trying to take control of parts of India. So it's a big uh, sort of epic novel in the sense of the backdrop is war, natural disasters and then through this you've got uh, Maya, this young girl who's trying to find a, a role for herself in this changing society and the, the tradition of the temple dances is something very unique to southern India and so really what I wanted to do was invite the reader to understand or uh, I suppose be entertained by this world of the temple dances in all of its sensuality, mystery and complexity. And Maya, um, she's, we start the novel when she's quite young. Uh, she's the daughter of a, of a temple dancer because it's a hereditary tradition. And we see her growing up and she's a particularly gifted uh, young girl and it's expected that she will be a courtesan for the prince himself. And things are looking good for her and her career and her life but then tragedy strikes her family and she's forced to flee her city and goes to Madras on the coast. And this is really where East and West collide. So you have this incredible melting pot of cultures. And it was wonderful to write about this time of intermingling and exchange between cultures. Mm. And that's really why I chose to set the novel in the early period, in the 18th century rather than when the British came later and it became a very much us and them um, dynamic between the British and the in, and India. Mm. So, um, so at that time there were a lot of liaisons, sexual liaisons and relationships between the Europeans and Indian women, including temple dancers, because they were they were attracted by these beautiful women and uh, they were really, the temple dancers at that time were, were like the artists of the day, they were like um, the celebrities. Like, so to be on the arm of a temple dancer like Maya would be this, the equivalent of being on the arm of Audrey Hepburn or Madonna. Uh, so they really had a lot of status in society, but that status didn't last. And um, and I particularly chose to set it at the time when these women were at their height, really, and empowered. 
because uh, that's always exciting for me as a woman to just to have that sort of character who um, who's very dynamic on the page. But of course, there's always uh, there's always the complexity of their relationship to men, because like the geishas of Japan, they were entertainers and they were dependent on men. Yes. So you have this. So it's a good. It's an interesting tension to explore in the novel. Yeah, because it is it is a woman's story, um, and it's also you know the world of the temple dancers is something that you know in a Western culture we would find certain elements of that lifestyle probably a bit disturbing. Yes, yes. So how, how careful do you have to be presenting another culture on the page and ensuring that people understand it rather than judging it? That's really, it's, it's certainly been a balance. Um, I think the way I chose to write about India and the world of these women was to be um, very sensitive to their traditions so for the novel, I went to India several times. I spent time talking to people who, who know scholars, who know this world very well. But also, I didn't want to shy away from the hard stuff. And as you said, it, it is, can be confronting. The character Maya is initiated at the beginning of the book, and she's actually initiated by being branded uh, with the trident of Shiva, because these women were actually seen to be married to God and Shiva is one of the Indian gods. And from that, from our perspective, that's quite horrific, actually. Uh, but from her perspective, it, she grapples with this, this tension all her life of basically being married to God, which is seen as a great honor at that time, but at the same time being, being slave to men, and at the same time trying to find her own way as a woman herself. And so um, I try to explore all angles and not shy away from the from the um, the aspects of the culture which I also find confronting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is your first novel, mm. but you've also written a travel memoir, Last yes. in Lhasa. What inspired the shift <laughs> to writing a novel, and why yeah. this story? Had you been sitting on it for a while, or was there something that happened that inspired that? Um, a couple of things. After Last Scene in Lhasa, I. I knew I wanted to write about India. I've spent time there, I've worked as a journalist there, and I've travelled there a lot. Uh, and then I actually read an article in the Sydney Morning Herald all about the last courtesan of southern India. And I'd never heard about these women, and I thought um, they sounded intriguing. Why didn't I know about them? And so I went to India and I started the research process. And initially, I actually thought it was going to be a non fiction book, a narrative non fiction. But when I started going to the archives, I went to the British Library in London where the India office records are, I realised that actually there's very few, there are very few sources um, from the perspective of Indian women, even less so Indian dancers, Indian temple dancers. The archives are very much um, from the victor's perspective, from uh, the, the British white male establishment. Mm. And so I thought, well, what do I do? I really want to tell this story. By then, I'd invested quite a lot of time and emotional energy and um, passion into it and I didn't want to let it go and then a publisher, a friend of mine, um, he actually said to me well write it as a novel then and I'd always wanted to write a novel I think it's a deep desire for a lot of writers and not write and want to be writers so I thought okay I'm, gonna, I'm going to do it I'm going, this is the story that needs to be told fictionally 
uh, because there aren't the sources to tell it in another way. And I think that's really interesting with stories. You have to know what's the best way to tell them and be attuned to the needs of the story mm. and put your own needs or fears aside. So making that change to fiction was um, initially difficult because my background is as a journalist and non-fiction writer. Mm. So uh, did you take any steps then to make that transition? Yes, I did. I mean, I did um, online courses. I did a lot of, I just spent a lot of time reading other um, how-to fiction books initially, but then I just started writing. And a lot of the early stuff, you know, obviously gets chucked out. Uh, that's always the way with any writing, well, generally with a book. Uh, you have to understand that, you know, you might think you've got a great scene, but actually you reread it the next day and it's not what you're looking for. So I just worked at it, and what I really enjoyed about it was learning a, a new aspect of the craft of writing. And I think I'd become a little bit jaded by journalism. It would always seemed to be the same article I was writing. There was a particular formula. I've been doing it for about 13 or 14 years. And I wanted to explore another aspect of the craft, and I'm very passionate about writing. So it's really been a wonderful um, learning curve and I feel as though uh, I now know a lot more and now that I've actually started to go back to journalism it's it's great you know I feel as though it's it's moving between genres which is actually quite invigorating. Right. Uh, so did you find any similarities then between writing a novel and writing something like Last Scene in Last which is narrative non-fiction? Yes, um, I did in the sense that um, it's about managing the research um, and being very light with the research. Uh, it's also, in, in Last Scene in Last where it uses many fictional techniques. There's um, a lot of character development. There's a, a sort of obvious narrative arc. So uh, I think I was already across some of these fictional elements with, the, with my travel memoir. But with fiction, you have, you have this blank canvas, and it's liberating. It's also a little bit nerve-wracking, because you can go anywhere you want to. Uh, and, so, and also you have these characters, and they sort of take over. And one character, you think he's going to be a minor role, and suddenly he's, he's taking up half the narrative. So it's like, um, I think I likened it to going from one, learning one or two instruments to having to conduct an entire orchestra. And you are the conductor, but also you're not, because you need to let the characters take the novel in the way they want to go. But ultimately, as the writer, you are always, uh, you've always got the baton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you, have the, you can press the delete key. Exactly. But then how is it different than creating a fictional character like Maya to uh, recreating the characters you met in Tibet in last scene, in last, right. particularly Arnie, I think Arnie, her name was. Yes, Arnie. yes. So I think with Arnie, the, um, I was very conscious when I was writing last scene in Lhasa to be as, um, as genuine, to make her as genuine as she is and to really honour her and her life and to be very, um, very conscious of the facts of her life. So it was about really trying to recreate her on the page. So, um, and, and I know her, so I kind of have an intimacy with her. I've known her over many years during my journeys to Tibet. 
With Maya, it was very different because I was getting to know her. And um, I wasn't sure how she was going to turn out. Um, I actually started, when I first started writing her, she was much older. But I realised that I needed to go back to the beginning and start with her as, as a young girl. And so it was, it was a very different process. And also because there isn't that much about these temple dancers that I could read. There are some um, books, but they tend to be scholarly or academic. So I actually went to the places where Maya lived. I went to this town of Tanjur, uh, which is now Tanjavur in southern India. And I retraced her steps. I did history with my feet. And I tried to imagine her life as she would have walked along the street past the temple. And uh, I went to the palace. I interviewed the, the prince of Tanjur. Um, and so I really tried to Im immerse myself in her world and through that understand her from the inside. Is there much of her world left? There's only traces. Okay. There's, uh, I mean, there is. it's amazing, though, when you go to the big temple in um, the city of Tanjavur, as it's now known, uh, it's, that was built in 1010, so a thousand years mm -hmm. ago, and the same rituals still take place every day. So there is an incredible sense of continuity in India, in parts of India, and it feels like the traditions haven't changed that much. So when I went there and I'd spend time there and look at the, the women and the children, they really treat the temple more as a sort of communal space and a playground and they have picnics and right. celebrate. It's not like going to church um, here where you sort of go in and go out. It's very much part of the social fabric. So I'd just watch um, people around me and through that I'd get a sense of her. And the game, it was amazing reading some of the accounts of Europeans who travelled there 300 years ago. The same games I saw being played by the children. Um, and the same sorts of traditions, the same festivals are still being held 300 years later. So I actually went to this big spring festival, um, which is called Pongal. And I rode on the back of a bullet cart to get there with some other Westerners. We were all tourists. And it was very uncomfortable, but it was good for my novel because Maya does ride on the back of a bullet cart at some point. And we went to this big feasting tent, and it was this palm um, leaf uh, feasting tent, and they served us food on um, banana leaves, and we all ate with our hands. And, um, you know, that's what she would have done. It was the same sort of habits and, and traditions. So, in a way, going there for me was what really brought her alive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, on to teaching now. You okay. teach travel memoir at the Australian Writers' Centre. Um, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about teaching writing? Well, I think when I started teaching, it was, again, another way of learning my craft of, of being a writer, but learning it from the inside out. Because in order to teach, you have to unpack what you do every day. Um, and make it accessible to people. So that was partly why um, I looked to teaching um, as a way to complement what I do, but also because it's so great seeing the um, seeing other students and other um, writers grow in the space of a few weeks or over a weekend workshop. 
And when you see someone, you know, the light just comes on, they've suddenly worked out how to do the introduction for their travel memoir, or they've been working on this for years and they've suddenly worked out the structure. And then they come back to me, um, you know, a year or a few months later and they say, this is what I've done now. It's really satisfying. And so I, and I don't get bored of it. I don't get bored of covering these same texts again. And I'm always reading new books and sharing it with them. And it's very much of a, um, you know, as a writer, you do spend quite a lot of time just on your own at the desk. So this is a chance to really get um, a relationship with other writers. And, um, and yes, I love it. Mm. It's great. Yeah. So as a writer and a writer who's obviously working on very different things at various yes. times, yes. do you have a particular routine that you stick to on a daily basis? I really treat it like a job. Um, I've got a separate office to my work. I'm sorry, I've got a separate office to my home. And I go there about nine till five or six. And uh, normally, if I'm working on a, a big project, if I'm working on a book, I try and just clear the... Um, clear the emails and whatever out the way and then I just start writing I find the mornings are better and then um, I'll do other um, bits and pieces in the afternoon and then go back and look at what I've written or else I'll um, leave what I've written that day and then reread it the next morning when I'm tried to, I've tried to have a break from it I think putting writing aside um, even if it's just for a night is really helpful So do you have any um, strategies or when you get stuck? I often go for a walk. Um, I find going for a walk really helps. Um, and I also um, take, I, otherwise I take a break from it. I do have a real belief that if you're working on a big project, having a writing bod buddy, somebody whose opinion you trust, who reads your work and gives you feedback, is really invaluable. So I do have a lovely um, friend and writer who, um, who I, if I'm desperate, I'll call up and I'll say, I just can't do this anymore. And she'll say, just 10 minutes, get back at the desk for 10 minutes. And I think sometimes you need that encouragement because something like this book, um, I mean, all up it took four years. The first two years I wasn't working on it full time. I was doing many other things and I was doing a lot of the research. But then I was pretty much working on it every day for at least a year um, with doing other work, teaching, writing, a bit of journalism um, and other bits and pieces. So you do, and, and it's not like you can make a list for yourself in the morning and say, tick it off, because you can't tick off the book. You know, you can tick off maybe writing two scenes at the end of the day, but it doesn't have the same satisfying feeling as with other jobs that you've done it and you can move on. So I think having a support network, whether it's one writer or a writing group, it really helps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So what are you working on now? Is there going to be another novel? Yes, there is going to be another novel. I don't talk about... Uh, I, I'm not going to talk about the next novel, um, but it is going to be historical fiction, and it's very much... Um, uh, it's, it's not set in India, although there probably might be elements of India. Um, and I'm also working on another, another travel memoir, and uh, I think that's enough as well as everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, just one final question. Yeah. Uh, what's one piece of advice you give budding authors? So I think really to, be, to persist, 
writing is about skill and technique, but really it's about tenacity. It's about keeping on, even when you get rejected, even when you submit an article to a newspaper and you get turned down, or a book to a publisher, um, keep persisting because the persistence actually counts as much as everything else, I think, with writing. Uh, Bryce Courtney calls it bum glue. Mm. Uh, not a very elegant expression, but it's there's de there's a definite element of that. So that's what I'd say. Yeah. Never give up. Excellent. Excellent yeah. advice. Thanks, Claire. <laughs> You're welcome. Good Lovely luck to with here. the Pagoda Tree Thank and you. luck with the next two projects as well. Thanks. Thanks, Danielle. You've been listening to the team from the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online at writerscentre.com.au and discover details about our courses, seminars and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.